Welcome to Great Women in Fraud with Kelly Paxton, Certified Fraud Examiner, Private Investigator, and Pink Collar Crime Expert. This is the podcast where thought leaders in fraud share their stories, wisdom, resources, and tips. For 25 years, I have worked in fraud and investigations in both the government and private sector. I love what I do, and I want to share with others who are also either working in fraud or interested in fraud as a career. This is where you will learn how to investigate but not commit fraud. Okay, I am so incredibly excited to have Jerry Williams on the podcast today because as I just told Jerry, she is an expander for me. And an expander is a person who has done something that you aspire to. And Jerry Williams, who you'll get to hear in just a second, she has created this multimedia empire based on her career in the FBI. And I, you guys are going to love this. So Jerry, introduce yourself and talk to however long you want about like what you have done. Well, I'm going to give you my standard introduction, what I have on my website and what I say in my podcast. So I'm Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent and the host of FBI Retired Case File Review Podcast, and I'm on a mission. I'm on a mission to show you who the FBI is and what the FBI does through my books, my blog, and my podcast, Case Reviews, with former colleagues. Well, and I mean, she's totally minimizing. So in the show notes, I'm going to have links to her stuff, but She's got books. She's got resources. And one of the first things that I want to, that I downloaded last night that I just had, it's awesome. The 20 cliches about FBI agents. And I just have to say the top 20 cliches about FBI agents. And um, okay, one of them I'm going to take issue with just in my personal experience. Okay, okay. <laughs> but, um, and, and I'm going to do it qualified is that agents on their own share but once management gets involved it's all it's a little more territorial than you make it sound out in my all right, personal so you're, so you're on the part you're on the cliche of uh, FBI agents don't play well with others <laughs> yes you're on that part oh. <laughs> hey we're supposed to be debunking these cliches not uh, supporting them But I did give that caveat. I said that individual agents very much are like that. But once it gets up, and this is like in corporate America too, once you get management involved, then everything goes a little bit sideways. So agent by agent, definitely they play well with others. But then when management gets involved, I think that's when it goes a little bit off the rails. So personally. All right. I can can see how that could be. Your your experience. <laughs> my personal my personal experience. Okay. And then we you didn't mention this, but you're consulting for Hollywood Studios. Like, how cool is yes. that? Yeah, that's something new that happened this year. And I, uh, of course, have always had the podcast. And from the very, very first episode, I said that I was going to look into, you know, what was in books, TV and movies about the FBI and to kind of set the record straight. And then from that, I created the 20 list of cliches and misconceptions. And then from that, I turned it into a book, FBI Myths and Misconceptions, a manual for armchair detectives. And from that book in the podcast, I got contacted. I didn't reach out to them, but I got contacted uh, by 
uh, Hollywood. And uh, I'm now under contract with FX Network and with Warner Brothers and Bad Robot. And I'm working on two TV shows about the FBI or featuring FBI agents that will be coming out I guess sometime in 2021, of course, the filming of all of this is up in the air because of COVID, but I am having an absolutely fabulous time talking with the writers and helping them, you know, get the FBI right in their, uh, in their scripts. Well, you know, when I first found out about you and I can't even remember how, because I like, I love podcasts obviously so much so that I created a podcast, but I can't remember exactly how I found out about you. But initially I was like, because I've looked at having sponsors to do the podcast. And I was like, is the FBI sponsoring her? Because they should be. Yes. Yes, they should be. (laughs) I think I'm a. I think I am a uh, a, an audio recruiting tool that uh, I think most uh, of uh, the FBI's recruitment office would attest to. Also, but uh, no, no sponsor. Well, okay, they need to get on it because they're asleep at the wheel if they don't. Because I mean, you know why they're not sponsoring it? Because I would do it anyway. You know, if if they know someone's going to do something because it's their passion and their mission and they're not expecting, you know, uh, the FBI to pay for it, then I know know the FBI, they're not going to pay. (laughs) Well, in this way, you have full creative control, which I think is incredibly important. Yes. Yes. So now we talked a little bit earlier about um, you did economic crime work. And so you are familiar with the term pink collar crime. Maybe you didn't know that that existed, but you also talked about a case. Do you want to talk about that case with Susan Barrett? Yeah. So I've investigated again, economic crime, which is your frauds, your Ponzi schemes, your advanced fee schemes, your business-to-business telemarketing, and of course, your major embezzlements. And so this particular case was an embezzlement. And Susan Barrett was a manager at what at the time was called Commerce Bank. And I think they were all up and down the East Coast, but definitely in New Jersey, where I lived at the time, right outside of the Philadelphia area. And I'm not sure how I got brought into the case. It probably was somebody from Commerce Bank reaching out to the FBI or to the U.S. Attorney's Office, but it was assigned to me. And basically what I learned was that as the manager, as the branch manager, Susan Barrett had had become very uh, friendly with an elderly man who was a customer at the bank. And he, of course, came in and had difficulty, you know, with his banking and his statements. And she offered to assist him. And at that point, she, instead of being mailed his bank statements, she would hand deliver them. And when he would get his bank statements, you know, everything looked good. I mean, he had several million dollars in, in the bank. and. Each bank statement came. The money was still there. He was making a little bit of interest on savings and and whatever he might have had and and money markets and 
you know, different uh, financial in- uh, instruments, everything was fine and uh, continued to be fine. It got to a point where be- she was so friendly with him that she became friends with the whole family to the point when either his daughter or probably it was a granddaughter had a destination wedding in one of the islands. Susan Barrett was invited and she spent you know, the glorious weekend with the entire family just having a fabulous time. They loved Susan Barrett and they loved her because she seemed to love their father. You know, she took care of their father. Then the father dies and then they start looking into his accounts and what it says on the bank statement, the paper bank statement that Susan Barrett has delivered to their father for years is totally different than what the actual bank records and documents say. Susan Barrett has been embezzling, had been embezzling money from this elderly man for years. And, you know, a lot of his money was gone. But was what was really bad is that when he died and she no longer had access to his accounts because now they're under um, his estate, she is able to get into the daughter's and his other relatives' accounts and start taking money from their accounts. And so basically, when the, uh, the, I, I go into the, the bank and I subpoena the records, I can see the bank statements that the father had kept on file what he saw, and I can see the actual bank statements. And if you look really close, you could see that she had gone in and changed the numbers. And so she was able to, uh, you know, because she's at the bank, you know, it, it, it looked real. It looked like these were the, the real truthful bank statements, but she had altered them. And he had no idea that she was taking you know, his money for years. And again, the daughters. I think um, the total amount came that she was charged with came to just under $900,000. But uh, I kind of remember it being a little bit more, but I think that's what uh, I... We, I had looked up the uh, the indictment, and that's what it said. So I I, I may have remembered it a higher amount, but uh, that's that's pretty significant nine hundred thousand dollars that she had taken from again the elderly elderly man and his daughters without their knowledge or consent. Well, and she probably went to that wedding on his money. Oh, absolutely. She did everything on his money. What yeah. she was doing with the money, um, where where I lived in, and I just she just happened to live in my town. <laughs> I live I lived in Washington Township, New Jersey, the one in, in the South Jersey, and she lived there too. But we're right, we're just an hour away from the Jersey Shore. And she at the time, everybody was buying up you know, beautiful oceanfront homes at the Jersey Shore and flipping them, you know, buying property that was a little bit run down and and developing them and making them pretty and beautiful and then reselling them. And she and her boyfriend were using his money in order to make these purchases and to make the uh, changes in the home and, and to resell them. I it looks to me 
that she wasn't very successful because she depended on his money even after his initial uh, in, uh, investment, quote unquote investment, into into her flipping business. But uh, it was, I, I, I think when you are an investigator of these type of cases, what you see is the emotional toll that the victims have to suffer through because it is in this situation and and many pink collar cases, as you and I discussed before we actually started recording, because we're nerds about fraud and we love this stuff. Um, it these are people that they trusted, you know these the these are women that they feel are caring for them, you know that are their friends that are and they set themselves up as caretakers while at the same time they're robbing you blind. Well, yeah. So like, this is, you know, I have the term pink collar crime and the people who take issue with the term are actually more women than men. And I didn't make up the term pink collar crime. It's a criminologist who came up with the term, but we, you know, I was a special agent for customs and we arrested bad guys. We don't say bad women. And we think about children. When you're a child or if you have children, you tell your children when you're in the store, if you get separated from me, go look for the nice lady. And if you see a bad guy, yell and run. But I'm kind of here to break the stereotypes, not in a negative sort of way, but for business owners to understand that, you know, it isn't just bad guys that steal. We we spend a just billions of dollars on locks and home security systems. But in the case of this elderly man, and it's a little different that he's elderly, like if he had just gotten his own mail in his own mailbox, I tell business owners all day long, mail your statements home. And they're like, well, why? And I'm like, cause you need to be the first one to get your statement. No one can get it. And Rita Cronwell, who stole $53 million, the largest municipal embezzlement, she was the controller of Dixon, Illinois. She got the mail. Why is she getting And when she went on vacation, because she actually did take vacation, she had a relative get the mail for her. That's like, I don't call them red flags. That's pink flags flying everywhere. You right. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and like you said, the emotional toll is just... Um, I was on a podcast yesterday and I was talking about like, there's also victim shaming and the victim shaming of fraud is really pretty bad. You will see someone who, you know, on a news story online that a business, I know a business owner, half a million dollars embezzled. The story goes on Facebook through the local newspaper and the comments are like, what an idiot business owner. Now, if you get your car robbed, do people say what an idiot car owner? even if you left the door unlocked, but people just, they think it's never going to happen to them because they're smart. It, would you agree your IQ has nothing to do with your embezzlement factor? Oh, definitely for embezzlement. Now I will tell you, I will have to admit that I, I occasionally do some victim shaming when it comes to other types of fraud, maybe such as an ad, advanced schemes, ad, advanced fee schemes. Um, and we can talk about that later. But in, in embezzlement, 
No, it, you're, you're absolutely right. It's a trust factor. And, and it's not just a trust because this person is nice, but they're an employee and they have a responsibility that you're being, that you're paying them for. And you believe that your employees, you should be able to believe that your employees are doing the job that they're supposed to do. Um, that's why you have employees because you can't do it all. You've got to depend on other people. Now there needs to be checks and balances and that could be other employees in your business that are checking on each other. But it is um, definitely a situation where it's all about trust and whether it's a very small family, you know, mom, pop, kind of business or a big corporation, the person that's handling your finances and handling your books is somebody that you put in that position because you believe they can be trusted. Well, so this is really funny that you mentioned this, the advanced fee schemes, aka prime bank notes, aka letter of credit. So you probably don't know this, but I, with an agent in U.S. Customs in New York, we did the first and probably ever only advanced fee scheme, um, like seminar, two-day seminar on it. And it was in, 19, I remember the year because I brought my son and he was, you know, it was 1998 in New York in the World Trade Center. And we put on a worldwide conference for advanced fee schemes. And the highlight of my customs career was stopping an advanced fee scheme by a female attorney, she stole $2.4 million. And like you said, the victim, he thought he was getting like 2% a week interest on his money. And he was greedy. And it was a long, crazy story. But I bet you did not know that I was part of the first and probably only ever advanced fee scheme conference. Oh, I'm so excited and happy. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Advanced fee scheme was one of the type of cases that I really enjoyed working because the in my situation, it was usually a loan broker and the loan brokers always thought that they were the smartest people in the room. I mean, they were truly charmers. They were truly con men. And, you know, when I, they saw me come up, they were like, oh, you know, here she is. It's, you know, this, uh, you know, black female and, you know, agent, and, you know, I, I'll sweet talk her out of this, you know, because they're so used to, you know, with the BS and, and knowing how to be flowery and to convince people to do things that, in the back of their mind, they know it's too good to be true. So it was always fun to work those type of cases. But I always felt bad for the victims because these were always desperate people. But, and the reason that I admit to a little bit of victim shaming is because their desperation, it was like chum in the water for the for the uh, con for the uh, loan brokers and the con men, because they were so desperate, they they rationalized. They kind of lost their senses and, and their ability to smell something bad. Yeah, if it's too good to be true, it is too good to be true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, when you're in a point of like you're going to lose your business, and my victim wasn't anywhere going to lose his business. I mean, he was a multi, multi-millionaire. But, you know, he, I have to say, he loved 
law enforcement after this experience because we not only got his $2.4 million back, we got a house for him that she had bought with, you know, other stolen money and a car and he owned a car dealership. So, I mean, he, it wasn't, he was greedy, but he also wanted to kind of be, and maybe you've seen it, Mr. Big Shot. He was like, I've invested in this thing and I'm getting that he wanted to be Mr. Big Shot. And I remember him waltzing into the U.S. Attorney's Office in Seattle, Washington, Washington. My assistant United States attorney could barely hold back his laughter. He was European and he was dressed to the nines. He had gold all over him. He was hysterical. I mean, it, it was one of the funnest cases I worked. And I got to dis I got a female lawyer disbarred and sent to prison. So that's even better. I will have to say, because one of the things that I really stress to people when I talk about fraud is that it is never the focus of an FBI economic crime or fraud investigation to get a victim's money back. You know, our focus is to gather the evidence to prove that a person has committed a crime. But I would always tell the people that I was the victims of my cases, we may be able to get some of your money back. We may be able to get all of it, but most likely we're going to be able to get none of it back. And so good for you that he was able to get his money back and, you know, the proceeds of a home. But in most instances, those con men that I worked, uh, you know, that I investigated, that money was gone as soon as it got into their hands. Well, the only reason was we were, we had a really excellent relationship with a bank and the bank held it. And otherwise it would have been gone. It, it absolutely would have been gone. And, um, and it was funny, my group supervisor, he, I was always, maybe you were like this, but I was always a little delayed in putting my stats into the system. Like, I really didn't care that much about, you know, but law enforcement is governed by stats. I would always put in the forfeiture if we got it. The part about the person going to prison, that didn't excite me as much as making the victim full. Like, and that isn't the goal, but like making the victim full was just like the best. Because it didn't happen very often. I was going to say, I can't really think of a time where it happened at all for me because I, I, got lucky. <laughs> I mean, somebody, somebody met. Yeah. You, I think you were now the bad guy or bad girl or woman or whoever may have been ordered to pay back, you know, you know, for forfeiture, but I doubt if anybody ever got it. Like in the Susan Barrett case, did Susan Barrett pay them back almost $900,000? No, no. She did well, not. no one steals to save. I mean, that's no. so you probably don't know this. I'm the fraud hashtag queen, and I have lots of them. And hashtag no one steals to save, and hashtag trust is not an internal control. Like wow. those are some of the my most used ones. Because yeah. Well, I did I did a podcast interview and I have lots of fraud episodes on my podcast because I love fraud so much. And even though I try to do all the violations, I do do all the violations that the FBI uh, investigate. So I've got organized crime and I've got gang violence and I got serial killers and uh, all of it. I have it. I've done it. I've 
interviewed the person. But I do have a lots of fraud. And if you, there's a drop down menu at the very bottom of my website, and you can actually go on and 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 click on frauds and and access all of those. But I recently interviewed Vic Hartman, and Vic Hartman is was a uh, uh, an FBI agent and CPA and fraud investigator and. After all my years working this, he opened my eyes to one of the motivation. And I think it was, it's really pertinent when we talk about pink collar fraud. And he was saying that a lot of times fraud occurs and it's almost like binge eating. So a person feels bad about themselves has low self-esteem or whatever, you know, things are just happening wrong in their life and they start committing fraud and spending outrageous money and having this need, like the woman that you talked about uh, uh, with, uh, with the All the King's Horses uh, documentary. Yeah, Rita, well. yes. yeah, Rita, that a lot of times you look at this person saying, you know, you stole and embezzled all this money because you're greedy. And what he said to me is, again, like binge eating, it's like a, like a, a cycle that they feel scared and bad about themselves because they've taken it. And so they have to take more to buy more stuff to feel better. And it's like, and I was like, wow. After all these years of doing that investigation, I'd never even thought of that as part of the motivation to, to embezzle. Well, what's interesting, and you can Google this, is there is a drug for restless leg syndrome. And it has been used as, de- as a defense for like, um, you know, gambling and embezzlement. And there was a case by where I live where the woman stole $250,000 or it was like two sixty dollars from a golf course. And the golf course was owned by a wealthy family and they were friends with her. And what happened was is she went on this allegedly medication for restless leg and she started gambling and therefore she started stealing. And there's another woman. So I have felon friends that I write to women in prison. I stay away from men writings in prison, but women. And there's a woman who stole $10 million from a car dealership in Pennsylvania. And I wrote to her and I have these list of questions that I asked them and is, have you done this before? And this was her answer. Her answer was, I had never so much as had a parking ticket. I got sick. I got put on a medication And she goes, I went back to work and I just started stealing. She went, she literally took her family to the Vatican to see the Pope. Super Bowl. She had a $32,000 private lunch with Ina Garten, the barefoot Contessa. And she said she got put on a medication. She went back to work and she just started stealing. And And did you believe her? Yeah, I do. And there's other stuff about her history that like she... And there's a forensic psychologist in Oregon who's done work with these women. And um, a lot of them are clinically depressed. And there's abuse in childhood. Not all of them, but there's a high amount of abuse in childhood. And this woman, Patricia Smith, she was like, I never felt loved. And she wanted, she wanted to earn her family's love. And she was working for this very wealthy family that owned numerous car dealerships, had a stadium named after them. And she saw them living the high life and thinking they were happy. And you know what? She thought money bought happiness. And that's another thing is money is a short-term fix. 
for a long-term problem. Mm. Like we can, you know, you can take money and it's going to fix your visa problem or your mortgage problem, but long-term you need to get on a budget or you need to like downsize. People see money as a short-term fix. And the problem is once you steal it, you don't stop. Like you, I rarely see people who stop until they get caught. Yeah. And I think that is what has always been fascinating. So my entire bureau career, other than the time that I was the spokesperson for the Philadelphia division, I spent investigating fraud. You know, maybe the first six months I did bank robbery and something like that. And then I got into assigned to work fraud and worked at my entire career. And what you start to to wonder is what is it that they say to themselves that makes it okay for them to steal other people's money? And I think this idea of the depression and stealing more and making it a cycle thing to try to feel better is an answer to that question that is valid that I really didn't think about before. That doesn't mean I feel sorry for the people because of all of the things that they do so that they're not detected. That's where the crime uh, becomes an official act. You know, it's a real act because if it was just a depression, then, you know, they wouldn't be not going on vacation or never getting sick or, you know, all of that kind of stuff they do to make sure they're not detected. At that point, you know, you, it, it's a criminal act. You know, they're, they're, they're trying to ev- evade um, detection and consequences. But it is interesting when you think about that person who is running up their credit card, it's really the same person, but this person is paying off the credit card with somebody else's money. Well, yeah. And, you know, the fraud triangle, you have opportunity, pressure, and rationalization. And as accountants and auditors and fraud examiners, we're always talking about control the opportunity. If you don't give them an opportunity, they can't steal. And I, you know, I believe that, but I also believe rationalization, a business and a business's culture and a boss's culture can really affect a rationalization. And and I use this this example all the time. A colleague of mine goes, business is being invested, he thinks, downloads the data. The business owner says, okay, this person is in charge of this. This person is in charge of that. And then he gets to his administrative assistant and he says to my friend, he goes, don't look at anything she does. She's too dumb to steal from me. Guess who stole? Wow. Now, it doesn't make it right. But when you have that, it's easier for the rationalization part. My boss is a jerk. I'm going to take money from him. The, the other example I use a lot of times, you get a business owner who lives out of the corporate checkbook, we call it. And they take their family to a trade show in, let's say, I don't know, the the Mediterranean. They come back with their Black American Express bill and they hand it to the accounting staff and it's like, okay, pay it. And the accounting staff is like, well, you took your family. So like, how do you want me to break this down? And the boss is like, it's none of your bleeping business. Just pay it. That accounting staff person knows you're stealing from the government. And it, it might not happen right away. But eventually, it may happen when they can't even go to the Jersey Shore for the weekend because they're overdrawn 200 bucks. They don't feel bad. 
Have you seen that uh, TV movie uh, with Hugh Jackman called Education? Bad Education? Oh, yes, I have. Yes. So that, <laughs> yeah, that's kind of an example, you know, where they're looking at this woman who works or uh, I guess she works in administration and, you know, her boss is telling everybody, don't worry about her. You know what? Let's 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 not try to bring the police into this. Let's not. And the reason we learn it. Oh, oh I'm giving away the movie. <laughs> That's OK. I'm giving it away. Boil alert. You know, the reason that he does that is because he's taking money, too. He's taken more than she has. And so, yeah, this, it's it fraud to me is fascinating. I mean, it is fascinating. And that's why even as a crime writer, all of my books, you know, everybody thinks, you know, we got a book about an FBI agent. Well, that FBI agent isn't a chasing down terrorists or chasing down spies or organized crime or, you know, murders or violent crime. All of my, uh, the bad guys in my crime series are all con men and fraudsters and doing corruption because I'm fascinated by, you know, how these people operate, you know, as they operate and take other people's money. Well, so the superintendent in bad education, Frank Chazone, was actually on a podcast, you know, you and I love podcasts. He was on a podcast after the movie came out. And he said, um, it all started with two Greek salads and two sodas. He came into work on Monday morning and no one noticed. Now, the more part of the story that I think is funnier or more ironic is um, the woman who was this sort of administrative person who's played by Allison Janney, she actually outstole the superintendent. So one of my three points when I do a presentation is never underestimate a woman. So this woman, even though men generally steal more than women, women steal more often. And you, I asked you not to be a leading question. Who's a, who's, which gender is better at embezzlement? And, and my answer is definitely women. And, I that, love it. <laughs> and that is because, you know, from my experience, my investigative experience, they're more trusting. And when you have a situation where trust is given, the trust is just you know, I trust you, you wouldn't do anything, you know, to hurt me or steal from me, then it makes the ability to do just that even easier. And, and, and in some of the cases where I look at embezzlement cases where they're involving women, as I said, with Susan Barrett, they're caregivers. They're bringing in brownies and cakes for birthdays. And, you know, they're going out and asking you about your kids and your grandkids. And, you know, at Christmas time, maybe they're doing the Christmas shopping for the bosses. They make themselves an integral part of that person or the business's framework where everybody believes that they are, you know, just you know, perfect, the, the perfect employee. And all the while, underneath all of this facade of trust, you know, fullness, they're stealing, you know, they're, they're taking and taking and taking and nobody is wise, you know, enough that they, they, they don't even notice, you know. 
Well, in the medical world, in the, I'm going to say traditional medical world, um, I work out a gym at a gym where a woman um, whose husband is now a retired ophthalmologist and she found out what I did and she was fascinated by it. And she, I said, well, you know, it's like the office manager. And she goes, oh, you mean uh, the doctor's second wife? And she's like, in the medical yes. world, they call that office manager the second wife. And yes. she is the one who goes and she buys the presents for the wife and maybe the presents for the girlfriend. So that's the other thing is that person is trusted with information that can backfire against the business owner. So when the business owner confronts them, if they ever catch it, they're going to say, well, you know what? I might call your spouse and tell them about that little apartment you have downtown for your, you know, whatever. And um, so you give them that trust and that trust can backfire when they are confronted because these are people who have never been in prison. Like, you know, it's not in their world. They're, According to the ACFE, only 4% of them have criminal histories. Now, in my experience, a lot more of them don't get prosecuted. The boss just fires them. Right. Oh, absolutely. You know, that definitely occurs. And again, maybe they do have something to blackmail the boss about. But in most, most of the time, they don't call the police on the person because they really have feelings for them. You know, maybe even, you know, as far as as a work companion, a work family, they love them. And, you know, they didn't want to they don't want to see them go to jail until they fire them, Um, which is devastating for for everyone involved. But no, you need to go to jail. (laughs) You know, no, you, you need to be charged with this so that you don't have a clean record that allows you to go into another business where if you get depressed or you get mad at the boss, you can do it all over again. Oh yeah. I mean, when they just get kicked to the curb and they don't get prosecuted, it's a couple of different things. So the people in the business are going to go, well, I guess I can do that and just get fired if I get caught. But then there's the Google effect. And the Google effect is when they go to get the next job, if there's no record, then, you know, it's going to happen and they become serial sort of, you know, serial embezzlers, which is different than I'm going to say honest people steal. Because, yeah, I mean, I I can't get out of bed in the morning if I think that everyone's out there stealing. I I just, I don't want to live in a world where I think that. And you and I have seen a lot. But I, I think good people make bad choices. I also think bad people make good choices. Things happen in a person's life. And who am I to judge? I, I just, yeah. Well, I, I think I, I think that's an excellent point too, because you know, I'm saying a lot of stuff here. And I I think that the judgment of the person as a person uh, is something that even in law enforcement, you know, we can't do. We can only judge their behavior. And request and, you know, try to get consequences for the behavior. And I think that's why it's, um, you know, it's good to talk about, you know, people being depressed and, and as in binge eating, when you're depressed, you eat more and eat more and binge, um, embezzlement, <laughs> you know, when you get depressed, you, you take more and you take more. That's definitely, um, you know, a, a way to be able to look at this that can be very helpful 
when you are doing your investigation and interviewing this person and trying to find out everything that they did and account for it. You know, being able to go in there in this non-judgmental way, you know, you're a very, very bad person, you know, taking that away and just saying, you know, I can see that you're hurting a lot and that, you know, that this is something that before you got to this pos- this particular position, you've never done before, you know, but we're here now and, you know, let's sit down and talk about what happened and what you did. So it's an excellent point. This is so funny because I had this and um, this <laughs> had an ex FBI boss and um, <laughs> I did an interview one time in his office and he was outside and he hears me laughing. Well, it turns out it was this young man. He had proof on his phone that he didn't do what he was accused of doing. So we're in there and, you know, we're kind of laughing and he leaves and my boss comes in, ex-boss comes in and he's like, why are you laughing? There should be no reason you're laughing. You should make them cry. Everything. He took such joy at making them cry. And I'm just like, you know what? We're all humans. You don't need to do that. And I I will say, I was never badge heavy, like that's a term in law enforcement to be badge heavy. As I've matured, not going to say aged, but as I've matured, you have more experiences in life. And I think you can come into an interview with a much bigger mindset and you get more from it. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the whole goal of your interview is to gather information and to gather evidence. So if you can do that by making that person feel comfortable with you and sharing a laugh, then who really cares? But I have to say, I didn't, this wasn't my goal and it wasn't something that I tried to do. But when I could make a grown man cry, I did probably give myself a little, you know, extra badge of... (laughs) badge of honor, you know, but it wasn't my goal, but it was always, uh, you know, if I was in an interview and, uh, you know, a few tears were shed on their side, you know, it was always like, yeah, I'm badass. Well, so what you just said twice, I think is really interesting. You both, you said interview both times. Now I listen to a lot of podcasts. I read a lot and I'm going to go to this is great women in fraud. And I think women make excellent, excellent investigators because we don't say interrogation. No. We use interview. And and I'm doing this, I'm doing a practice class for a university. And I've had a bunch of young male students do my interviews. And I just had two women, young female students do the interview. And the rapport that they got right off the bat was so different. So this is what, yeah, there are differences between men and women. And I think women really, like, it goes to the caring, the trusting. We can use it for good. Oh, absolutely. I would say I can't can't think of a, a case that I investigated or an interview that I participated in that I didn't try to not, I wouldn't even say build a rapport, just be real, you know, just be real. And I just did a podcast interview maybe last month where I was talking to the agent and he doesn't even use the word interview. 
He definitely doesn't use interrogation, doesn't use the word interview. He uses conversation with purpose. And I really like that. You know, if I was still in the FBI today, you know, conducting cases, I think I would start using that. Just I'm going to go have a conversation with this person with the purpose of trying to get more information about this case that I'm working on. And I, I love think, that. yeah, I think that's exactly what I did. I just didn't know what to name it. But if yeah. you go, yeah, if you go into a situation, I'm going to go interview this business person or this elected official or this drug dealer or this organized crime figure, I'm going to go have a conversation with them. And my purpose is to get as much information from them as I can that will help me with my investigation. That really sets the tone for the communication that's going to occur between the two of you. I really, really like that. Oh, I'm going to copy that if I can. Yeah, please do. I love that. So I just want to get people to know where to reach out to you. So you've got the podcast. Yeah, my, 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 you, you want to get all the information about my media empire? Is that what yes. you're saying? Yes. <laughs> all right. So my media empire uh, starts with the podcast, FBI Retired Case File Review. And you can access that podcast wherever you listen to your audio. And um, then I also have my nonfiction books, FBI Myths and Misconceptions, a manual for armchair detectives, and FBI word search puzzles, fun for armchair detectives. And both of those books are packed with information about the FBI, FBI policy and procedures, investigative tools and techniques. You know, uh, both of them, I think, are, 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 are fun. And of course, they would make great uh, holiday gifts. I don't. <laughs> this will come out before the holidays. Okay, great. And then I have what I what started my media empire, and I say that with a chuckle, and that is my crime fiction. Uh, I have my Philadelphia Corruption Squad uh, series, which stars. FBI, female FBI agent Carrie Wheeler. And, uh, and it's all about her investigating frauds and corruption and con men. But it is not your typical story. So it's gritty. It's dark. It is uh, the first one starts out where she's investigating corruption in the Philadelphia strip club industry. So it can give you an idea. And it's they're all based on, on real cases that happen in the Philadelphia division. But that gives you an idea of where I go with the story. And I am in the process of finishing up the third book in that trilogy. And so if you, you know, like fraud and corruption, say American greed type, then uh, those books would be uh, something that you would enjoy. And hopefully, you know, in the near future, I'll be able to tell you about the two TV shows that I am now consulting on that, you know, are not actually part of my own media empire, but definitely in my media empire portfolio. 
this is this has been so much fun. I'm definitely having you back, and um, I can't wait to hear because you said at the beginning it was like you'd read a script and you're like, well, that wouldn't really go. You know, I, I'm just fascinated by that. Absolutely fascinated by that. So we're gonna have you back if you will be back, and I know where I'm doing some of my Christmas shopping because this is <laughs> this is awesome. So thank you so much, Jerry. Thank you, Kelly, and everybody can. Uh, connect with me at my website, which is jerrywilliams.com. And that's J-E-R-R-I williams.com. Such a great, great, great episode. This has been another episode of Great Women in Fraud with Kelly Paxton. If you have feedback on today's episode or would like to be a guest or have someone you think we should interview, please tweet us at Great Women in Fraud or email kelly at greatwomeninfraud.com. We'd love to hear from you. Join us again next time for more amazing guests, stories, and tips. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, it would be great if you left a rating on iTunes. Or please tell a friend about the show. Your time is valuable, and I appreciate it. Thank you for listening.